The following podcast was recorded in 2022 and is now being released for the public. Thought leadership, titles, current events, legislation, and technology may have changed and evolved since it was originally recorded. I think at the most basic level, if you are in the business of national security, you should be thinking about the future. If you're thinking about the future, you're trying to prepare for that future, which means you need to have the best understanding possible what the world will look like. And the amazing and powerful thing about demography is that so much of the future exists in the present. What I mean by that is, you know, our future soldiers, they're in the nursery wards and preschools today. They're already born. And so I think that the economists should really envy me because I can predict with a much greater certainty than they could what's going to happen in the future because so much of it already exists. The opinions and views expressed in the following podcast do not represent the views of NIU or any other U.S. government entity. They are solely the opinions and views of the speakers. Any mention of organizations, publications, or products not owned or operated by the U.S. government is not a statement of support and does not constitute U.S. government endorsement. On November 15, 2022, a baby girl born in Tondo, Manila, made history by becoming the eighth billion person on Earth. On this episode, I spoke to Dr. Jennifer Shuba, an internationally recognized expert in the field of demographic security. In addition to numerous academic articles, she has authored two books, Eight Billion and Counting, How Sex, Death, and Migration Shape Our World, and The Future Faces of War, Population, and National Security. She was also the editor of a research agenda for political demography in 2021. Dr. Shuba is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and is on the Executive Committee of the Population Reference Bureau's Board of Trustees. She is currently a 2022-2023 Wilson Center Fellow on leave from the Department of International Studies at Rhodes College. Dr. Shuba is also affiliated with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She has trained at the Max Planck Institute for Demographic Research and worked for the U.S. Department of Defense and Policy on demographic and environmental issues. She received her Ph.D in government and politics from the University of Maryland and her BA from Agnes Scott College. Dr. Jennifer Schubert, welcome and thank you so much for joining us on the Intelligence Jumpstart. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. I want to start by asking you, you are a political scientist and you focused quite a bit on international politics. What sparked your interest in demography? You know, a really funny incident actually sparked my interest when I was in college around about the year 1999, so very long time ago. I was taking a class from my favorite professor who was eccentric in all the best ways. And there was one particular day that she came to class a little bit late and she shows up in the doorway and does this dramatic pause, kind of like waiting for everybody to look at her. And then we looked and I noticed she was wearing a black armband which is odd. And then she started marching kind of military style in front of the desks. We're like, what is going on? And then she turns to us and she says, today world population has hit 6 billion people. She said, there are way too many people in the world. I never had children and you should never have children. Oh my. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So things we couldn't say these days. Oh, you know, is that the good old days or the bad old days? I don't know. She's still uh, one of my favorite professors. And I actually had the opportunity to see her in December. She retired a long time ago. She retired not 
not long after I, I left um, college. But I said, do you remember that day? Because I was able to present her with an advanced copy of my most recent book, the title, which is 8 billion and counting. So, you know, you've added 2 billion more people. She said, oh, I absolutely remember that day. And I would say the same thing now. And so, uh, you know, I think it was her absolute commitment to this idea that population was that powerful, that it should affect her entire life that motivated me to study this, you know, what's the power of demography and what are the limits of demography? That is hilarious and a little scary. It seems like you've taken a more positive view of demographics. And in your book, Eight Billion and Counting, How Sex, Death, and Migration Shape Our World, you make a reference to your time in Rwanda on many occasions. What took you there? And how did that experience really inform your work as a demographer? You know, I think Rwanda showing up in the book so much is in part a consequence of it being the very last trip I took before I wrote the book (laughs) (laughs) because, you know, COVID hit and that was that. But that certainly wasn't all there was to it. I, in my life, focus mostly on population aging with my research. And so that means that I'm looking at places like Singapore and Japan and, you know, countries in Europe and even the United States. And so just like anybody who travels and learns, I mean, which we hope is everybody who travels that you learn something. For me to switch gears on the other end of the age spectrum intentionally made a really big impression on me. And because also I was there for the International Conference on Family Planning. And so it wasn't just a matter of, oh, I went to a country outside of my normal list of places. It's what we did while we were there. And in particular, we visited a rural health clinic. It's not the clinic that was of interest to me. It was us. So I was on a bus with people who worked for large pharmaceutical corporations, all kinds of different ones. And I was on a bus with people who worked for advocacy organizations trying to, you know, raise funds for an attention for um, family planning and reproductive health. And I was on the bus with people who had worked in governments and then researchers. And while being at, you know, a, a rural health clinic, like, of course, somebody would learn something from that. I was watching my peers and thinking, you know, this is how policy gets made. What kind of questions is a pharmaceutical corporation asking about this? And how are they turning to advocates and talking? And the lines were not as stark as maybe they had been in my mind before I saw this whole group of people together. And you just really see how it takes everybody and their own pieces of things for, for policies to change. And then, of course, the the regular things you, you would imagine that, that you would hope that I would have learned going to there, which is policy might get made in an honest, but then when you're on the ground in a clinic, how do women actually respond to this type of policy? What kind of contraceptions do they want to use? Does their family want them to use? You know, what are those barriers on the ground that the actual nurses and doctors were experiencing and the women themselves? So it, it was a partly a consequence of timing, but no matter what, it would have really affected me because I do talk about policymaking a lot, and it's always good to see what actually happens to those policies when they're made. Yeah, absolutely. That it, that it's pretty powerful aha uh, moment. I too yeah. am interested in policy and see that there is a misconception that it's not all done on Capitol Hill or by the people that are you know lobbyists and pet projects. But to also see the consequences firsthand of the policies is a pretty powerful experience. Yeah. Really interesting for, you know, taking a look at what actually is going on. That's really cool. One of the main arguments in your book is that the story of the 21st century is less about exponential population growth than differential population growth. What do you mean by this and why is this the case? 
Yeah, I think we have a tendency to be stuck in this time where, you know, think about my professor who was saying, hey, we had 6 billion people and this is a travesty. The world was overpopulated. Last century, we saw that the start of the century, we had 1.6 billion people on the planet. By the end, we had 6.1. That is tremendous exponential growth. And, you know, most of us who are in positions of influence were born during that century. I mean, it's about to change. Like, you know, they're, they're coming up there. Uh, time marches on. But there can be a tendency for that to stick, this idea that it was ex- exponential growth. But trends have changed. Global fertility is now 2.3 children born per woman on average. And replacement level, just replacing the parents, is 2.1. So we're nearly at replacement level globally. The UN has recently... They, they release these population data and projections every few years, and they recently put out the newest version in July. And they, they noted something that you know other demographers have noted, spelled out clearly, that even if we were to try to lower fertility in the very few places in the world where it's still really high, our population growth between now and mid-century would look the same because it's baked in. It's not that global fertility is high. It's that, you know, there are large cohorts of childbearing women in some places. So we got to shift our mindset, like get away from the idea that it's exponential growth, but instead think about how different trends can be around the world. So that subtitle of the book is, you know, sex, death, and migration. We see differences in each of those trends. So yeah, there are still some areas in the world, very few, but some that have, you know, women on average would have over five children in their lifetimes versus some where they have under one, well, that's differential there. You know, you've got the same thing with life expectancy and health outcomes and then migration as well. So fascinating. We'll get to this more in a bit, but you talked about the differences of like the People's Republic of China and the trends that are in Russia and other countries throughout the book. And it's really interesting to see how different each nation really approaches their family planning. Yeah. As you know, generally speaking, demography is not associated with national security. I never thought of it being until I saw you speak at a research seminar given by the Office of Research. So can you tell us a little bit about why you think this is a national security issue? Why should the IC be thinking about demographics? For sure. I mean, I think at the most basic level, if you are in the business of national security, you should be thinking about the future. If you're thinking about the future, you're trying to prepare for that future, which means you need to have the best understanding possible what the world will look like. And the amazing and powerful thing about demography is that so much of the future exists in the present. What I mean by that is, you know, our future soldiers from, you know, 15 years from now, they're in the nursery wards and preschools today. They're already born. And so, you know, I think that the economists should really envy me because I can predict with a much greater certainty than they could what's going to happen in the future because so much of it already exists. I think why you should pay attention to demography is you want to understand the future. That's one thing. The other reason is that people are the foundation of everything. They're the foundation of every polity, every society, every economy. And so if you want to understand these future trends, you need to have a greater understanding of people. And at at its basis, that's really what demography is. The trends that the most powerful countries in the world are experiencing in terms of their population, those are going to shape their capabilities and their aspirations on the world stage. Yeah. So going more into how they deal with that individually, you explore power transition theory to explain China's military buildup, despite their shrinking and aging population. And then you talk about 
And I've seen recently how Russia is, you know, their population is receding, and yet they are sending or drafting more men right now in the conflict right, with right, Ukraine. Right. And, and folks are like, well, is there really a smart move? I mean, you're kind of taking care of an entire generation. So I'm hoping you can speak to that a little bit. How are China's and Russia's issues different? Yeah, how are they different? And and how are they the same? I think this is probably the the biggest area for the national security community at this moment to pay attention to. And honestly, the takeaway should be that demography is not destiny. And what I mean by that is, is a lot of things here. So I remember when I worked at the Pentagon in the mid 2000s, the most common refrain I would hear about Russia was that we just didn't need to worry about them anymore because the Russians were all drinking themselves to death. They weren't having any babies and a bunch of people were leaving. So how could a great power possibly have those kinds of dire demographics? And there are some quotes, you know, to that effect by some very high ranking U.S. military leaders. But I'm trained as a political scientist, first and foremost, which I think is a good advantage because it means that I understand that all those numbers have to be set in a larger political context. And I think it's really seductive and maybe maybe it's desirable to think that an aging world, a, a world where people's populations are aging, countries' populations are aging, will be a more peaceful one because then that would make us say, you know, hot dog, we're going to have peace in the future because we know that the, the world is aging. But I think it's just projecting, you know, what you want to see for the U.S. Specifically, I think those U.S. leaders wanted to see a weak Russia. Of course they did. They wanted to see the U.S. was relatively better off than Russia. So that's what they saw when they looked at those trends. And, and you know, if they wanted to back those up, they could look to Europe because the very first countries in the world to age. And what I mean by that, you know, and just in case that your listeners don't know, just a quick primer on population aging. I'll go back to, to Europe. If you think about um, the average number of children born to a woman in her lifetime, you know, I've already said that around two is replacement. Of course, you're replacing the parents. Um, obviously, if it's three, each generation is 50% larger than the preceding one. But if you hover under two for a while, and you don't have a big influx of migrants, your population will eventually shrink, but it certainly ages. So we can measure that by looking at the median age in a country. You can line everybody up from the youngest to oldest and ask the middle person to raise their hand and how old are they? Well, you know, in Russia today, that middle person would raise their hand and they'd be about 38 or 39 years old. Okay, so, you know, when you think about Europe and Japan, they were the first countries to get those higher median ages. When I was doing dissertation, the three oldest countries in the world were Germany, Italy, and Japan. Okay. And they were not starting wars. And so I think the danger was, and, and I, I said this at the time, it just so happens the first countries to age were almost exclusively democracies. And I think that's what drove our perceptions about peace, plus the assumption that an aging country would behave like an aging individual. Well, if you're an aging individual, you know, there's not a lot of 80-year-olds out there, you know, training to run up uh, and hide in a bunker. Okay. So, well, yeah, they will be casualty adverse. They won't have any money to spend. All of these are assumptions that were made, but they aren't necessarily borne out because we forget what countries want. I mean, Vladimir Putin, because of the institutions in Russia, the rules of the game, he can do what he wants to. He might pay some price for that, but he can do what he wants to. And then also, as more and more countries have become aged populations, they're much more diverse in terms of their institutions. So now if we looked at the set of old countries, demographically old, it includes 
Singapore, Thailand, Cuba, a much older group. I mean, a much more diverse group in terms of institutions. Wow, that that is a shift. It's a big shift. So we're not talking about, you know, France anymore. We're talking about going all across the world and seeing a variety of institutions. So Russia's demographics on paper, or if you assume demography is destiny, you'd say they're totally weak. They'll never go to war. But if you put a political lens on it, you'd say, well, that that's not necessarily true. And I think the same then could be said for China. Uh, at the same time that I was at the Pentagon, there was a narrative around China as well. And it was kind of caught between, uh, I think it's, I call it like a Goldilocks view of China. They, some people were like, oh, they have too many young men who are unmarried, or they have too few people in the workplace. They had too many, they have too few. They never were just right. And that's because you project onto them. You want to see a relatively weaker China than the U.S. So you let the demographic data tell you that that's the case. And yet, what have we seen since then? Unbelievable economic growth. And yes, a workforce that has been shrinking, you know, for several years now, or it's already peaked, I should say, it's past its peak several years ago now, but the desire from the leadership to do more in terms of power and the institutions, the rules of the game set up that allow them to do that. You know, when I look at China and Russia, I just see them as two examples of non-democracies that have undergone population aging. And they tell me that we need to think more broadly and not just borrow from a European or Japanese model to think about an aging world. You mentioned our perception of China and the Goldilocks theory. And, you know, I've talked to other guests about innovation and how we define innovation is really our perception uh, and how, how we deal with, you know, our race with China on our technological and medical advancements. Do you see these technical advancements as disruptive or supportive? I mean, disruptive or supportive in shaping the trends that you study today? Well, I think if I'm looking at the lens of population aging, which as I've already said, I do do that mostly. Um, I just find it super interesting because it's it's new. I think that it is it can really go hand in hand with helping countries and economies adapt to population aging. So I don't think there's any demographic trend out there that is inherently good or bad. You know, you can have two youthful countries and one's embroiled in conflict and one's got a super booming economy because they put everybody in the workforce. Same for population aging. You know, to the extent that we know that, again, love how demography helps us predict the future, workforces will shrink, okay? It's just something that's going to happen and you'll have more older people than younger people. So what do you do with technology to make sure that you can still have a, a strong economy? Japan has been a fantastic example of this through automation, robotics, uptake, et cetera. However, you know, if I am going to try to switch gears here to some of these younger countries and, you know, think about how the intelligence community really tries to do some risk assessment and, and looking out at the world for hotspots, I think it is troubling. I do talk about this in the book a little bit too. It is troubling for peace and prosperity that some countries are kind of unable or they haven't industrialized in the same model as maybe China did. And yet they have tons of young people who could be potential workers. And, you know, there's there's an economics literature on this to think about what does it look like to try to have a growing or advanced or developed economy if you didn't go through that manufacturing leap in general. But then I would add on to it, if you're automating already, but you're, one of your greatest resources was your people. So that I think there's so much more that needs to be done on that, that like add in this extra later layer of what if automation comes to a place that could have had a ton of people working? What does that do for discontent? 
it's interesting what how we think about like the metaverse and AI and how that's actually going to contribute to all of that, the automation and you know displacement yep. workers and their opportunity. But so degrowth theorists argue that what is it, the global north or the more developed and advanced industrial nations should focus more on sustainability rather than yep. opportunities to increase consumption. So why are countries concerned that their population size is decreasing at a time when all we hear in the news is stories about climate change and other human-driven incidents that are draining our resources? Would it be better for the world if we had fewer people contributing to those human-driven incidents and, you know, not necessarily from food shortages and COVID and all these other things that have happened? Yeah, I think, you know, you're really asking the big question, like all caps, that we need to grapple with in humanity today. Because, you know, I certainly I would say of the people I speak with, almost no one accepts that overpopulation is not still an issue. They're all still stuck in this mindset that it is an issue. The problem with being stuck in that mindset is, well, then what is the policy response to that? If the policy response is to lower fertility, I'm sorry, it's already been lower. Like there's not really very far you can go with that. So I think you got to let it go, you know, and I'm not speaking to you, I'm speaking to like the world, but the problem with letting it go is it's going to, the corollary is let's replace it with overconsumption. And nobody wants to hear that. Like, I don't want to hear it. I want to be able to go grab, you know, a, a packet of ground beef to grill out by the pool on a hot day. Well, right there, that scene in your mind is me like severely overconsuming, okay, <laughs> and contributing to climate change, even though I had my requisite replacement level fertility. So I think the overpopulation narrative is a very comfortable place for us to sit because it requires that honestly, two thirds of the people on the planet do absolutely nothing. If overpopulation is a problem, two thirds of us don't have to do anything. If overconsumption is the problem, that's that itself is a problem because we have decided as a capitalist species that the marker of success is unending growth. So if I'm going to push to you that overconsumption is a problem, your guess will be that my policy solution will be knock it off with unending growth. And that just upends the entire world system. So this is a, that's why I say it's the big question for us to grapple with. I really don't even think we're hardly grappling with it yet either. I, I, I don't, I think we're like, oh, climate change, that is terrible. And that's about it. But we've got to start thinking like, how do you have a real paradigmatic shift to understand that? Overconsumption is a problem. And maybe if you have a shrinking population, you don't need unending economic growth. Or what other vocabulary could we use to measure economic success other than unending economic growth? I'm Manoli Perniotakis, and I use Vice President for Research and Infrastructure. And this is this episode's Manoli Minute. Our next guest is Neil Johnson from DOE's Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Neil will be talking about deepfakes and their associated technology. In a sense, deepfakes are an astonishingly difficult take on a long-standing intelligence goal, deceiving the adversary through a variety of means. One of the masters of this discipline was longtime national security professional Barton Whaley. Whaley served in intelligence with the U.S. Army Psychological Warfare Group headquartered in Tokyo during the Korean War and eventually earned his Ph.D. at MIT. He wrote multiple books on the topic of denial and deception and served for many years at the Naval Postgraduate School in beautiful Monterey, California, before eventually heading up the Foreign Denial and Deception Committee under the Director of National Intelligence. 
He passed away in 2013, leaving his private library built up over a career in national security to the IC. It includes books, journals, speeches, and other related items to his professional passions, denial and deception, but also his personal passion, magic. Fittingly, he was reportedly a member of the Magic Castle in Hollywood, as well as the International Brotherhood of Magicians. The library he left behind is now part of the NIU Library Special Collections. In cataloging it, our librarians found marginalia, receipts, and other clippings Whaley added to the volumes in his collection. He was a remarkable man who led a noteworthy life, and the student who writes the best denial and deception-themed thesis every year receives the Barton Whaley Award. Thanks again for listening to Intelligence Jumpstart. For more information on NIU, please visit our website, www.ni-u.edu. So interesting. Other guests on the Intelligence Jumpstart have talked about climate security, and it's really interesting about how interdependent the issues of various disciplines are with demographics like food shortages. Oh, yeah. And we see that our food is greatly dependent on pollinators, which are disappearing because of climate change. And folks are like, well, I'm not a meat eater. I don't want to eat corn. Well, you have to feed your animals, you know, and the crops that livestock uh, livestock consume are those crops that are endangered. And, you know, more underdeveloped nations are going to yep. see the impact before the richer nations. That will impact yeah. migration and the list goes on and on and on. So it's, sure. it's very, very connected and heavy questions to think about. So you talk a lot about gender and gender inequality and the lack of actual data to support demographics in your book. And I'm wondering, how do pyramid demographics provoke unrest that can lead to civil war? And I guess the example would be what we saw in the Arab Spring. Yeah. So with this question, we're thinking more about, you know, populations on the younger end of the age spectrum, right? Where the bulk of the population is kind of exiting adolescence and entering into young adulthood. And I would say we know far more about that than we do what I've been speaking about so far with population aging, because we haven't had population aging conditions before, but we've had plenty of examples of these younger populations. And we do know that they are more likely to experience civil unrest than populations with older age structures. That's true. So if we're talking about, again, looking out at across the globe and on the horizon and you want to identify hotspots, it makes sense to focus in on some of these younger countries like the Western Sahel, for example, still has some of the youngest countries on the planet, higher likelihood of experiencing civil conflict. But why is that the case? Because as I said, no trend is inherently good or bad. So we've had plenty of young countries that did not get embroiled in civil conflict. And so what makes up the difference? I mean, one of the things is governance. Do they have capable leadership that is, you know, has control over the borders and the people and everything that's within it? If they do not, no, then we know that that's another little check mark to put in the column of likelihood of conflict. I think we also have to look at economic trends as well. And that's where we kind of marry this with what we were saying earlier that about automation coming to places that haven't yet used their labor force, so to speak. And it sounds very instrumental for me to put it that way. But, you know, just imagine being a young person, any of us, as we went from being super young to old, what did you expect to happen in your life? You expected to get a job. So you could put food on the table. You probably expected to get your own home, like form your own household. Maybe you expected to get married, although like that's increasingly the case for people in developed countries. 
but you had these certain markers of adulthood you wanted to hit. And if you're not able to hit those, then you have a motivation to act on that potentially in a violent way. We've got like this whole motive and opportunity thing here. So if you've got some rebel group that wants to recruit for their side, which you're always going to have that. And people, young people in a country have a low opportunity cost for joining that rebel group. They're not giving up anything to do it. Then you have, again, a higher likelihood of conflict. So it's like the age structure. We kind of saw this with the Arab Spring. The age structure itself is not what led to the Arab Spring. It was like, you know, if I'm going to build a fire and I'm building up all of my kindling, it's there and it has this higher potential for fire to explode there. But you you had to have this spark Mm, there. You had to have this fuel as well. right. Not to be redundant on that point, but it is really fascinating. So most countries are developing need to increase their GDP. I mean, that's just that's just a fact. So we see a lot of developing nations that are struggling to feed their people to and to support them. And, you know, you've talked about unrest, migration and so forth. Sometimes it seems that leaders of these nations put programs on the back burner that would actually promote their human and natural natural capital growth. To me, this seems to undermine their economic potential. Can you talk about... And you've already touched on this quite a lot, unlike the variability of country to country. But how would what would you say are similar demographic issues for regions with a burgeoning population, such as those developing in the sub-Saharan Africa? Yeah, that's a good question. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, absolutely does. Because, you know, there's this, yeah, I've talked about some of the national security challenges, but you can also think about what are the opportunities with demographics, right? So, and the same trend could be, it is both a challenge and an opportunity at any one point in time. And so one of the the things that might make the most sense is for us to think about something called a demographic dividend, which some people will have heard of this before. If you've heard of the demographic dividend, you probably heard it talked about in the context of the Asian economies, what we used to call the Asian tigers or the Irish tiger, or they call the Celtic tiger sometimes. So if you imagine, we've talked about very old age structures, median age is higher. We've talked about young age structures, median age is lower. What about right in the middle there? So this would be a time when fertility has been relatively lower or lowering for a little while. And that means that the bulk of your population is of working ages. Well, what do you do with those folks? You could harness the power of demography and use this as an engine to fuel your economy. And that is exactly what, you know, China did, for example, Taiwan, et cetera. So they were able to use their population, again, instrumentally here, but also benefit the people as well to grow the economy. Latin America, on the other hand, when they had age structures similar to that of East Asia, they did not have the same kind of policies in place to harness their dividend. And so we often say they squandered their dividend. They could have seen the same level of growth, but demography is not destiny. So then how do we translate that to younger countries today? In sub-Saharan Africa, this concept of the demographic dividend has been really popular among leaders, as you would expect, because you want to think they must... They've been told for decades what a burden their young population is. Like, this is terrible. You need family planning. It's why you're poor. And then now you can kind of reframe that to say, wait, you're the only place on the planet left with young populations. Isn't that wonderful? 
you know, yet again, isn't this all about perception? Oh, it's the same thing, but okay. But now we're going to say it's the demographic dividend. And what, you know, the message that some scholars and some advocates have been trying to promote to among these leaders is FYI, it's not automatic. So y'all got to put some policies in place to take advantage of this. And we have a list of them. It's things like, do you encourage foreign direct investment? Well, those are rules changes you can make. Do you promote exports? Do you have free secondary education? So, okay, now we're starting to get into this question you had, you know, about types of policies that could actually improve the the lot of the population. Do you in general invest in human capital? Because that's what they did in East Asia. We had much uh, more widespread healthcare, literacy, investing in children, and you grow that human capital base, making sure you have managerial and technical expertise. All of these things can help you harness your demographic dividend, but none of it's going to be automatic just because the bulk of your population is of working ages. Right. Okay. So I want to go back a little bit to the family planning piece. We've mentioned a couple of times what that means specifically for women and their ability to get healthcare and your pregnancy mortality and all of that. Do you think, and maybe I'm misunderstanding this, but there's the concept of demographic engineering. Would that be a negative consequence of strategic family planning in that, you know, we saw with the families of China that families weren't allowed to have more than one child. One child. One child. Yeah. So you talk a bit about that in your book, this concept of demographic engineering right. and how it's used to stack the deck against certain groups of people. And I'm, I'd like you to talk about the consequences of that, but also, yeah. you know, what targeted groups can do to maybe counter some of those, counter the impact of some of those efforts. Yeah, that is a good question. And, you know, we have to talk about this with population because, you know, I'm, I actually hope that listeners have been somewhat uncomfortable with this idea that there is an ideal population, you know, because that should make you think about some really nasty people in history who manipulated population. Okay, so we don't want to do any of that. And let me be clear, this concept of demographic engineering, or sometimes called strategic demography, it's not a phrase you hear really out there, you know, in the vernacular, but it is something that has been around in all time. And it's in every country and it's in very, uh, it's got both carrots and sticks. Okay. So that can be kind of, yeah, I get it. I I get uh, a benefit of the U.S. demographic engineering through my child tax credit. Well, that is a benign form. It swings all the way to forced sterilization. Okay. So where it's not actually like there are actually both demographic engineering. It's placing value on certain demographic trends, wanting more births, et cetera. But it's a spectrum from, you know, benign to malignant here. So let's talk about the really bad parts of that. <laughs> and actually, this ties into the national security community pretty well um, and in our history. So if we want to think about there was a time in history sort of recently when environmentalists and demographers got the U.S. national security community on board with the idea that population mattered. And that was in the 1960s and 70s, when both Republican and Democratic administrations in the U.S. thought that high population growth abroad would end up being a threat to democracy and capitalism because high population growth equaled poverty and poverty would make communism seductive. Interesting. Yeah. So you can read transcripts of, you know, all kinds of U.S. presidents, Johnson, Nixon, all the people saying we need to put money towards lowering population growth abroad. And it was in the name of freedom. Wow. Wow. (laughs) So it was a... Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, it was, a. am like, I don't ever know how to tell this story. It was a time of bipartisanship. Yay. But you know what, what comes out of that includes things like 
Indira Gandhi's forced sterilization of millions in India because some, you know, some of her food aid was tied to that or, or just her buying into the idea that overpopulation would hold India back. China, of course, bought into the idea that overpopulation would hold them back economically, and they chose to use a stick rather than a carrot to lower fertility. They said, we restrict you from having children because we want to hurry this up. Now we know coercion is not necessary for for fertility to lower. Fertility tends to lower when you give women more education and more opportunities for employment. There's so, so, so many examples in the world where there's been no coercion and people just prefer fewer children over time and they know how to make it happen. Okay, so they didn't need that coercion, but they went that way anyway. I think another reason that that overpopulation narrative continuing today makes me a bit uncomfortable is that, you know, it makes me think about this narrative of the 1960s and 70s. And and it is totally different to have coercion versus available family planning and reproductive health. And so I try to operate in a, a, you know, in the realm I'm on the board of the Population Reference Bureau, for example, which does a lot of work with USAID. And it's saying, hey, we want to make sure you have access to contraception should you choose to use it. And here you go. You know how to use it. We also want to make sure that if you have a child, you are going to live afterwards and get the health care that you need and that your baby will as well. So, you know, much more into the, the health sphere of that. So coercion is not necessary for that at all. And there was another part of your question too, I think. What was that? Because I think there's probably more about engineering and coercion we could talk about. The political consequences. You talked a little bit about India and forced sterilization. Yeah. Well, and then India, what a, an, an interesting example too, because today they have below replacement fertility. No more coercion, below replacement fertility. People, and actually preferences when you ask, you know, how many children do you want to have? It's even lower than fertility is today. It's around 1.7 children on average per woman, which means that as they get greater access to family planning or reproductive health, well, actually you should expect it to go lower by choice. That's interesting, especially since their population is more educated now and they have more choices and opportunities. Yeah. So thank you so much for being generous with your time today. As we're winding down, I want to talk a little bit about the end of your book. And for anybody that hasn't read it, I highly recommend it. I found it very interesting. It's something to consider. and And I think we should all take a look, especially when we're analyzing specific regional and cultural issues. In your book, you conclude by considering the future of global population. Your assessment includes six key points and I'm hoping you can touch briefly and summarize or give highlights to these points as we finish up today. Yes, I would be glad to talk about those six points. So one of them is to think about um, the influence of population size. It is not everything, but size does matter. And I think that, you know, the United States has had certain views of the world and itself on top of that were permitted because we were one of the most populous countries in the world. But we're actually about to be taken over by Nigeria as the third most populous country in the world. And so in India, any day now really is going to eclipse China as the number one most populous country in the world. So it is still true that size matters because this is like a bigger potential military, maybe a you know a bigger potential economy, but mostly it's perception. So I think the size matters and it is really, you know, a sneaky way to say sometimes it's it's how you perceive things. So yeah, yeah. When we think about you know what makes up a powerful country in the world today, we don't tend to think of the smallest countries in the world. Okay, but it doesn't fall neatly along those lines. So let you know, I don't want to overplay that one. North Korea, not large, but do they have a big influence in in policy? They do. They sure do. 
So not perfect, but size does matter. Don't forget about it. The second one I talk about is that people actually move in somewhat predictable patterns. I think this is really useful for the intelligence community because, like I said, we want to look out and say, what's going to happen? And I think migration out of the birth, death, and migration gets the, it's a special place as being, well, we don't know. You can't predict migration. Yes, you can. You really can. I can promise you we're going to continue to have border crisis in the United States and Europe. And how do I know that? Am I, do I know something other people don't know? No, I just recognize the fact that we have done nothing to change our asylum process. And therefore we're going to continue to have a crisis. A crisis is just manufactured because it overwhelms the current system. Well, nobody's out there changing their systems. And so you continue to have a crisis. It's also politically very useful to have a crisis for both the left and the right. I mean, everybody has this happen. We also know though, that people move in fairly predictable patterns, you know, networks of migrants. If you know that a lot of people from country A have gone to country B, you know what I'm going to guess in the next five years, more people from country A are going to go to country B. So we really can trace that. We also know that, you know, nobody who's incredibly poor migrates because they don't have the money or know how to do so. But if they have a little bit of money, they're more likely to do so. So I think that, you know, there are somewhat predictable patterns to that. The third point to make out here is to talk about not just international migration, but within countries. And that's to think about the role of rural, urban configurations. And so again, talk about predictability. People in countries that are not very urbanized will become more urbanized. It's not a headline. It's just, that's how it works. Where we might want to ask more questions or dig a little deeper is to say, does urbanization today look different than it did in the past. And that, again, calls back that point about manufacturing, industrialization, I should say, uh, as a path to development. Because if poorer countries are not industrializing along the same path, I have some concerns like it used to be when industrialization was happening decades ago, people would move from rural to urban areas to seek job opportunities and they would find them. Now they would be exploited and they would look like Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. You know, it wasn't all rosy there, but they would find these jobs. People are still moving to cities in sub-Saharan Africa and countries, but they're not necessarily finding the jobs there. And so I think that's a place for us to look into, like, is there something different there or not? The fourth point is that an aging world is coming. And I won't belabor that because I think I've already pointed that out. Two thirds of us live somewhere with replacement level fertility. It's baked in. We know it's happening. What we don't know is what an aging world looks like exactly. But we should turn more to the present to think about the future. Are we having issues with aggressive aging states today? Yes. Then we should expect to have them in the future as well. Sorry to jump in here. I want yeah, to point out the no, book that yeah, you talk about the health or Haley concept, which is health adjusted life expectancy. Even in the United States, it makes a difference where you live yeah. because the concept basically, as I understand it, is that it's the number of years that you are healthy and yeah. can live without significant help or assistance. So the higher your Hill or Haley number, the worse off your economic opportunity is. Can you speak a little bit about yes. this? Yes. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Yes, that is such a great point because, you know, we know that an aging world is coming, but not every country that's aging is going to fare the same way. I kind of like to make this parallel with climate change. Uh, you may think like, what how does this have to do with you? You know, climate change is coming. And so you want to think, you know, are there ways that we can adapt to this new reality that, that countries will be living in? Same for population aging. It's something you know is coming. How do you adapt to make sure you're ready for that? And you want to have the healthiest population 
possible because you know people will be working into their older ages. Well, you can't do that if you're not well. And we know that how expensive it is to be sick. And that it can be a drain on family coffers and on government coffers. So, you know, the point five is actually that policies can shape the future we want. So we could use this for that as well to say, what are you doing now to make sure you're prepared for the future? We're all going to have aging countries eventually, but what we're doing now, kind of like with the demographic dividend, are you investing in your human capital? Are you investing in your people? will determine how you fare as the, the background changes. For sure. And so uh, that last point is that the demographic divide really shapes the fortune of countries. Now, again, I never will tell you that demography is destiny, but it really is powerful. And so, you know, we know that there are ties between age structure and conflict, as we've already talked about. There are only eight countries left in the world where women have on average five or more children in their lifetimes. But those countries are going to draw an inordinate amount of attention over the next several decades because they will be facing so many more uh, famine and not they won't be bouncing back from natural disasters. They are more likely to experience armed civil conflict. And that's in part because of poor governance. Of course, it's not just because their populations are young. So, but that's going to shape the fortunes of those countries. And, you know, we'd have to keep thinking about demographics in larger contexts, but we can't forget that it is a huge force in the world today. So fascinating. So I want to go back to the 8 billion and counting the title of your book. Uh, We're set to hit 8 billion this fall. Can you touch on that a little bit? What is the significance of 8 billion aside from it being 2 billion larger than we were in 1999? I mean, it's incredible growth. Yeah, it's incredible growth. But you know what? I'm not going to be wearing a black armband about it. So I think that that's the difference. Is, <laughs> I'm glad um, to hear that. You know, we are 2 billion people more. And, you know, in case everybody's wondering, what are we going to top out at? We should be topping out all, all signs point to under 11 billion, like 10 and a half billion. That's because, and that growth, people are like, but wait, I thought you said overpopulation wasn't an issue. We can't, we can't lower fertility much more. I mean, it's, it's, it's already, the mommies are already born. Honestly, please don't think that this is a recommendation, but the only way to change things would be to kill children. Okay. So I hope you're not advocating for that, right? Listener. So we don't want to do that. We do not stand for that. And that is not okay. But that's a really bold way of saying, you know, it's already, is already happening. So It is momentous to think about 8 billion because we've only got a couple more milestones left in in humanity. And and these milestones are increasingly rare. So we hit six in 1999. I was already a college professor by the time we hit seven, which is 2011. Uh, And then, you know, 2022, we'll be hitting our, our 8 billion. And then the time between the next billions will be ever so slightly longer, you know, 13 years, 14 years, moving into that there. And I think If nothing else, it gives us a chance to pause and take stock. And the world of 8 billion is a different world than the world of 7 billion. It's a much older world uh, in particular. And unfortunately, it is not as much of a a healthier world as we might have expected it to be because of COVID-19 and lots of other health issues. I mean, U.S. life expectancy was already declining before COVID. So COVID just kind of exacerbated that. So we can think about what do we want a world of 9 billion to look like? We know it's going to be a much older world. I mean, there'll be zero countries. Ooh, I should, should I say, stake that claim. There will be no countries with fertility of five children per woman on average anymore. 
will be, I, I mean, that's, you got to make some big changes between now and then, but they're so close to not being five. I feel good about that prediction. There'll still be lots that are four and three, but we're moving more and more towards that. So we have to take stock and think about, you know, how different is the world of 8 billion and how different do you want mm. the world of 9 billion to be? Oh, interesting. So if our listeners want to connect with you for your thought leadership, what what is the best way? How can they find you? I am out there and I have a Substack newsletter. I know everybody has a newsletter. Mine's really short. So it is four minute read or less that comes out about every other week. And it is exactly on these questions. I I tend to take questions like how low could fertility go, for example, or what do we think about this latest migration crisis? And I explore those. So you can subscribe to my Substack. Anybody can start at my webpage, which is jennifershuba.com. And you can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn. And um, also reach out to me there as well. I'm always happy to come talk to groups. And I do have this new book out, 8 Billion and Counting, How Sex, Death, and Migration Shape Our World. And, and I really wrote that out of my policy experience as a, it's almost like a frequently asked questions and ways to think about demography. Because if I just tried to do a snapshot of trends, like the book would be out of date before it, it's printed. So I hope people take away from it lessons about how to use demographics to read the world. Absolutely. And I wish you luck on getting your new book together as you're doing a fellowship at the Wilson Center here in Washington, D.C. Yes, on demographic engineering. So there you go. Fantastic. Thank you again for your time today. This is really fascinating and I've taken a lot from our conversation. It gives me a lot to think about. Thank you so much for having me for a great set of questions. Thank you for listening to the Intelligence Jumpstart Podcast. We'd love to hear from you about what you like and what you'd like to hear more of. If you would like to learn more about a specific topic or issue, send us a note at nipress at niu.odni.gov. To learn more about NIU, visit our website at ni-u.edu.